Hello and welcome to these audio excerpts from the Westvic PHN COVID-19 Pandemic Response Project ECHO series. In session 10, recorded on Thursday the 4th of June, we kicked off our mental health series. Good morning and welcome to the Westwick PHN COVID-19 Project Deco. This morning I'll invite you to turn on your video. I know in the past we've um, said shut it down because I think um, Zoom was probably struggling with bandwidth, but hopefully things have improved for everyone. It'd be great to see your faces as we uh, head into our four, uh, third month since the um, pandemic was um, declared and we've been in lockdown. It'd be lovely to see um, our community's faces. We're going to start, I'm popping up a poll um, and we're going to kick off this week, session 10, we're going to kick off our mental health series with a uh, focus on Aboriginal concepts of mental health and wellbeing. Modern psychological approaches drawn from a group um, with continuous connection to culture stories and country for over 50,000 years, who over thousands of years have developed systems of care in the face of adversity, trauma and uncertainty time and time again. So I think at this time, as we um, pause and we begin to ease our restrictions and, and face uh, a lot of uncertainty ourselves, uh, I look forward to uh, learning more about this, this, this wisdom, these systems and, and wisdom. Okay, so I'm Bianca Forrester. I'm the GP facilitator for the series. We all introduce ourselves in the chat and I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Project Echo coordinators, Gemma Misbark, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Director of Special Projects, Matt Dixon, and Dr. Kate Graham, GP Lead of Health Pathways. Pradyoda Yoda and Tangarung Man, Adam Muir, uh, Aboriginal Health Project Officer for the Westwick PHN, now delivers the acknowledgement to countries. Now, we make this acknowledgement each week, and I edit them out of these audio files. However, with Reconciliation Week last week and the Black Lives Matter protests coming up tomorrow, I'm going to leave it in and hope you'll join me to pause to pay respect. We... We acknowledge traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways where we are calling in from today, recognising the diversity, the importance, the resilience and the ongoing place that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hold in our communities. We pay real respects to the elders, both past and present, and thank them for keeping our culture strong. I acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in, in this session and also the non-Indigenous people who commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding and respect for the benefit of the broader community and future generations. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, and welcome. We now, as we face the easing of restrictions, we turn our mind to um, somewhat restorative and recovery phase. We're not quite there yet, but perhaps with the sense of providing care as people return back to work, school and routines and take stock of the impact of the pandemic and the, and the impact the pandemic response has had. In healthcare, we collectively face uncertainties about what this next stage holds and many questions are upon us with uh, many answers at this stage. So um, I'll welcome Jeb Friedman to give to provide us an overview really of um, where we're up to and what we've learned across the globe. So we'll be looking broadly across the globe and, and uh, getting that epidemiological perspective. And then um, Tanya Dalton, proud good Jamara and a Wadharong woman and psychologist will then present to us um, a bit about what we've learned over time, I guess. Um, so we're going broad and we're going deep today. Um, and then I'll welcome Mia West, GP registrar from Wadharong Cooperative to present a case that will kick off our discussion today. And with that, I'd like to now hand over to our first um, speaker, Deb Freeman. Thanks very much, Bianca. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm an infectious diseases physician. I'm zooming in from Wadawurrung land um, at Barwon Health. So I'm gonna, I, I wanted to give a little bit more of a global report today. I think that people perhaps um, are interested in 
just getting an overall perspective of how we stand instead of kind of drilling down into the, you know, less than 10 new cases, talking a little bit more about how we look compared to the rest of the world. So what, what's up on the screen right now is a WHO um, report that comes out every day. Um, this is the report from yesterday, which looks at new cases in the last 24 hours. And you can see that there's over 6 million cases in the world. We are part of the Western Pacific, which is right at the bottom of the table. And in the Western Pacific, um, there've been the smallest number of cases. And you can see Australia accounts for about 7,200 of the total in the Western Pacific and 102 deaths. And it's really dwarfed in comparison to the Americas and compared to Europe. Daily reported cases in Australia, since things settled down in about the second week of April, you can see that the numbers have remained low and in general that's meant less than 20 cases a day in the entire country. Um, the cases that we've detected daily have been as a combination of widespread screening of symptomatic cases, but also asymptomatic screening blitzes. You can see um, on the right-hand side that I've documented the population prevalence, if you calculate it based on a population of 25 million people, which is what we are, our prevalence is less than 0.03%. In the whole country, 0.5% of tests are positive, and in Victoria, it's about 0.3%. And once again, the figure to watch and the thing that is really going to define how we do is the proportion of cases that have an unknown source. And that's sitting steady at 10.5% in Victoria, and that is the number that we'll continue to watch. Slide, thank you. An overall um, graph of the world, the Countries in yellow are the ones that have reported um, 1 to 100 cases in the last seven days. Only a few of the countries in yellow are ones that have accurate data. So for some of the ones in both South America and Africa, there'd be under ascertainment and a paucity of testing. But the accurate, um, certainly the accurate ones are New Zealand, Australia, certainly Norway, and a couple of other selected small European countries, possibly China, although I'm a little sceptical about that. Um, next slide, thanks. And then once again from the WHO, this is the graph showing all of the different world regions. The things to take away from this is, as with one of the first slides that I showed you, the numbers are, the numbers are highest in the Americas and still moving upwards. If you look at Europe, which is the sort of ready colour, you can see that they had their peak starting um, kind of in the middle of March and that, that it is decreasing now. But any ongoing activity in Europe, which is still showing reasonable numbers, is largely driven by an increasing number of cases in Russia and by ongoing outbreaks in the United Kingdom. Um, and I'll just get you to click again. Thank you. And just this, uh, what this graph shows is, um, you know, also how many new cases are coming through. And the US is um, most certainly not under any form of control with new cases reported yesterday, 26,700 new deaths. Uh, next slide. Thank you. And then just to look at daily confirmed deaths, this is a really interesting um, site if anyone wants to take down 
um, the link to it. Um, you can put in any country and it shows you how it compares to other countries. Um, interestingly, or what you probably work out from this, because you actually have to have had um, more than 100 deaths um, in a seven-day average to actually get onto the graph. So Australia can't actually get onto the graph, even if you try and put us in there for comparison. But what you can see is the downward trend in several parts of Europe, most importantly, Germany and Italy. You can see rising deaths in India, and you can see that the United States is still sitting high, as is the United Kingdom, and certainly not a downward spiral for either of them. And I think I've, next slide, thank you very much. Um, we've talked before about the doubling time. So how many days does it take to double your number of cases? Um, this is largely looking at the Americas, but you can see that the doubling time within the US is still sitting around the two day mark. Um, you can see for several parts of South America that the doubling time is increasing. In comparison, our doubling time gets longer and longer. And when I calculated it yesterday, it was 66 days for doubling within Australia. Um, next slide, please. Um, we've talked before about the R naught, so the basic reproductive number. You might recall that we said that when the basic reproductive number is above one, then you can see an increase in the number of cases. And we know that the R naught for this infection has been quoted at being about 2.5, and that's what it was sitting at in Australia at the time when cases were increasing. When the R naught gets below one, then the outbreak eventually stops. And that R naught being below one is the thing that has really explained our reduction in cases since, since we got very good control in April. I've circled on the graph where we're sitting now, our R naught is sitting somewhere between 0.5 and 0.9. Um, it's taken 43 days to increase from 5,000 cases to 7,000 cases. So if you look at the graph and you look at the line between on the, on the left-hand side, five, going from 5,000 to 7,000, it makes our R naught below 0.9. Um, <clears throat> according to mathematical modelling, once you start easing restrictions, if you can maintain your R naught below 0.9, then you're going to continue to have control of the pandemic. And we're still sitting at that point right now. Um, next slide, thank you. I've outlined here what the essential things are in order for us to have preparedness for the new clusters that do arise and will continue to arise. So one is the widespread um, availability of testing, which we certainly do have, early contact tracing to allow for both isolation of the case and close contacts, social and physical distancing, overall hygiene measures being both personal hygiene in terms of hand hygiene, but also other cleaning measures and an ongoing supply of PPE. Next slide, thank you. And then I've just put up this was obviously the roadmap um, and how we move out of um, the restrictions at different times. And you can see that we've moved through step one and we're sitting kind of at the beginning of step two now. Um, and that, that was my last slide. 
um, I wanted to answer a few questions that had come up um, both at the end of last week and then um, some new questions that were submitted. Um, the first um, question was whether or not if you had staff that were working in some sort of COVID-19 testing clinic with appropriate PPE, of course, whether they could work in other settings, such as general practice or other places. And the answer to that question is that they most certainly can. Um, if you're wearing PPE, that's considered appropriate protection and you can work in other locations. I think the other thing to acknowledge is that our very low um, rate of positivity means that the majority of people that a person tests, even in a testing centre, are going to test negative. Um, that's obviously very different to what's happening overseas, but I think it's quite safe to work at different locations. Um, I, I guess the caveat to that is that the outbreaks that were seen in aged care in the US were linked to nursing staff working across multiple facilities. And you could argue whether it was wise to work across multiple facilities. That would certainly be a problem in the setting of an outbreak. But once again, in a low prevalence setting, that doesn't appear to be an issue right now. Um, the other question that came through was about things that are going on with regards to both providing testing and also other resources for vulnerable groups in the community. Um, I wanted to thank some of the GPs who've been very vocal about this. There's going to be a disability forum, um, certainly locally at Barwon Health, but I think that there'll be some regional sort of tentacles going out from that. Um, and that's going to be held next week. And I know that there are some GPs who've been invited along um, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that the department is embarking on a 10-week testing blitz again, which has just been announced this week specifically for vulnerable groups. That will be all over the state. We've just become aware of it in the last few days. Um, and that's specifically targeting vulnerable groups in the community. That includes disability groups and um, Indigenous people. Um, Locally, um, a message about the closure of our acute respiratory assessment clinic on Friday. Um, it's been open for about 10 weeks, I think. Um, another message locally that Bowen Health North doesn't test children under the age of five any longer because we no longer have a doctor on site. It's a nursing-led clinic. Um, there are ongoing preparations for cluster plans um, regionally. Um, and there are teams that have been set up by the Department of Health to work um, on clusters as they arise. Um, and then I guess finally, just a mention that we're in the phase of restoration, as we've spoken about before, and I think restoration is a gradual process. While people had to adapt unbelievably fast to a changing situation, we're now asking people to sort of adapt again, but in the opposite direction. I guess I liken this to there's two different ways that people get into a cold swimming pool. Some people jump straight in and some people put their foot in and then gradually get in the water. And I think both of those approaches seem very sensible because I can understand the anxieties and the amount of enormous adaptation that's had to occur um, in the primary care sector. But I, I guess we're sort of we asked everybody to adapt very quickly to a new normal and then we're asking people to go backwards to what they were doing before. So there will be some anxieties and I can imagine people taking different approaches to that. That was all I had to say and I will be holding on to answer questions. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks, Deb. And we'll invite Deb to come back for the 
the traditional project echo COVID rapid five at the end. So make sure that you get all your questions in the, in the chat. Deb will be surveying the chat through the session and I'll invite you to kind of put your final ones in at about 8.20. Um, so thanks for that. And now I would like to hand over to Tanya Dalton um, to present uh, about Aboriginal mental health and social and emotional wellbeing. Thanks, Tanya. Hi, my name's Tanya Dalton. I'm a Wuthering Gunditjmara woman, um, psychologist, practice mainly in the Barwon Southwest region. I'm also the chairperson of the Australian Indigenous Psychologists Association. Um, I just want to talk about understanding social and emotional well-being. It's a term that um, is used in the broader community. However, it does have um, certain meanings for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, I think the most fundamental question is, before we go into this, that we must ask the question or um, ensure that we're asking the question about Aboriginal status in order for formulations and cultural formulations to have true effect when we've got people sitting in front of us. The concept of mental health comes from an illness base and a clinical perspective, whereas um, so in the Aboriginal space, we think it's quite individualistic. So as is some of the literature, and you may see that um, when you're looking in the Aboriginal space, that their literature is written differently and it's written from a collectivist um, approach because our health is seen or we understand the concept as broader than just illness based. And it's around connection to land, culture, spirituality, ancestry, family and community. So the impacts of that aren't only um, around the uh, biological. So um, hopefully I'll explain that a little bit better when I put up the diagram next. This is what our conceptualization of what social and emotional well-being looks like. So in the middle of that wheel is their cultural cons, um, determinants of health as Aboriginal people see it. We went nationally and had national um, roundtables uh, in Australia with Aboriginal communities. And there was consensus that this is what they believed holistic health looked like to an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. And so it's made up of not only connection to body, which is illness focused, but also to mind and um, emotions, which what we would see as um, my domain in the mental health spectrum. We've also got connection to family and kinship in the impact they have because when um, on a spectrum, but we're more towards the collectivist end. Uh, connection to community, because they're very important supports to us and um, connection to our culture. Um, and that can mean terms like going home to country or um, uh, practice of cultural uh, ceremony or language or those sort of things. And also connection to spirit spirituality and ancestry. So for those of us that are fortunate enough to know our um, heritage as Aboriginal people, um, there are several that aren't. And those impacts come from what's on the outside of that wheel um, and they can also impact on people's well-being. So they are social determinants, historical determinants and political determinants. You see it sitting in your clinics every day. 
So I suppose the other thing that's important to note is that Aboriginal people experience their culture and their cultural beliefs individually, um, uniquely is how I should say, and express them and experience them uniquely too. So um, we can't say because of the diversity of Aboriginal people and these cultures, laws and the impacts on us that, you know, it's the same for everybody. But this is used as a guide and why um, it's really good when you're doing your um, mental health or, or assessments to actually um, talk to Aboriginal people and how we use this is in a supportive way to say, well, who is your connections in this community? How do you get your supports? Who are your supports? What are your services that you're using at the moment? And pull on those levers because you'll find that holistically they will be um, the people and, and the impacts that they're feeling and they will assist them in better health outcomes actually. So there's the nine principles represents the areas of consensus of, of diversity. So there's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health is viewed in a holistic context that encompasses mental health, physical, cultural and spiritual health. Land is central to our well-being. I heard it put that we have a heartbeat, but so does the land. So if the land suffering, so do we. Self-determination is central to the provision of Aboriginal and Tor Torres Strait Islander health services. So um, allowing people to make their own decisions around their health or um, as, a, as a collective, because um, many people will, will feel that um, it's a it's a decision by committee when it comes to health and mental health. Um, culturally valid understandings must shape the provision of services and must guide assessment and care and um, management of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people's health. It must be recognised that the experience of trauma and loss present um, since colonisation um, is very real and you see it in uh, contemporary society today. Some of that is fear of going into GPs um, and uh, hospitals, all of those sort of things. And they're coming from a historical base. Um, so they are, it's not about you as the individual, it's um, because of uh, history. Um, so then there's the racism, um, stigma, environmental adversity and social disadvantage that also impacts on them help seeking and also following some of um, the, uh, the prescribed health uh, betterments of their health. It's also fair to say there is no single Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander cultural group, but numerous groupings. And so we have to take this into consideration when you're dealing, uh, when you're working in urban settings. Geelong, for example, has a very big Aboriginal community. We're actually the biggest Aboriginal community outside of metropolitan Melbourne. There's over 3,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders um, within the greater Geelong area. Then we have in the um, uh, West PHN area, the most um, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations um, within here. So we've got lots of clan groups and um, 
we've got many Aboriginal people here and there is great diversity in our communities. So just um, also touching on culturally validated assessments. And I think um, what I wanna draw your attention to of, of this list is um, the Kessler. So I know that the K10 is used a lot in practice. However, it was deemed to be culturally um, not good. So the K5 is what's been culturally validated. And I'm happy to send Bianca um, some, some um, uh, information around that and how you use that, um, the K5. Uh, they're saying that the K6, because it had a question about work, worthlessness, um, that that was deemed culturally inappropriate um, from 2016 findings. So that's why we've gone to the K5 now as a, as a tool that's, um, that's the most appropriate to use with Aboriginal people. The other one that I'd like to um, touch upon is I know that the Edinburgh Depression um, postnatal dis uh, depression scale is used a lot too. And so that has been adapted um, for Aboriginal community. And that's the Kimberley Mums Mood Scale. And I'm also happy to provide some further information about that. That touches on social and emotional wellbeing, the supports and holistic supports of the, the mums and bubs. And particularly at this time, I know that they're feeling very isolated. Um, so it may give some, some better understandings and formulations to um, when you're working with new mums. And baby coming new ready is also uh, another um, mental health support, but also practical support for um, when pre and post delivery of a child. So this draws the panel didactic to a close. Tanya Dalton refers to the uh, to a resource that we'll include in the distribution email. Thanks for listening and come join us next week as we cover perinatal care during the COVID-19 pandemic in the West Vic PHN COVID-19 Project ECHO series. See you then. <laughs>